You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message recorded live from our Burgess Hill campus. So, when we look at the Bible, you're, I think you can all agree with me that there are many awe-inspiring statements that are said. There are many uplifting verses, encounters, healings, transformations... However, there are also some challenging instructions, warnings, and, some, and even consequences said of actions that are not right. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that whenever I read something in the Bible that speaks of uh, or challenges my concept of God, that challenges the concept of how I think I should live my life, it makes me feel a little bit uneasy. Because it's almost like I have to do the self-assessment. And I don't like doing self-assessment sometimes because it means I have to be vulnerable. And I know that when I come across these passages or these verses in the Bible, it can be very quick to want to brush over what is said. Just read it through quickly and be like, and move on. There can also be times when I, I read it and it's almost like I try and give myself a checklist. And my, you know, things that it says make sure you don't do this, or make sure you don't do that, or challenge your instructions in how you live. I'm like a checkbox saying, I'm not doing that, so I'm okay. I'm not doing that, so I'm okay. But I am doing this, so that makes me, that's all right. It's almost like I'm creating a column of like do's and don'ts and trying to live accordingly. And in Proverbs, as I was reading through, I was surprised what I was challenged by. And what I've, I've read through it numerous times, and then something came, and it was almost like, you can have these moments where it just was like, this is what needs to be said. And it's often a passage that I can brush over, and almost a passage that is very challenging, and it's in Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. And it says here, there are six things the Lord hates, and there are seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Wow. That, that's heavy. You know, first of all, but not only because there's two words in the sentence that are applied to God. Things he hates and things that are detestable in his sight. And that's a challenge. And I've, I've read through Proverbs and I think so many times, but this, for the first time, has stood out to me. And when I look over this passage, I, can, I, I start to ask the question, okay, what are, what are these things? Then what, Why are they things that the Lord doesn't like? Because it, it speaks of disobedience or actions that are contrary to God. And there's a series of a tone, a tone of voice I can read into this that I think must be listened to. These are actions that come from impulse. If you look at the world around us, how many people act out of impulse? How many people act in their own strength? In their own wisdom? In their own logic? We live in a world that focuses on trying to tell you how you should live your life. And in in doing so, people will do whatever they can to achieve that. No matter what, what the outcome are, or no matter what their means are of getting that. 
It shows a heart and a mind that does not depend on all that God has to offer. It's a behavior that is not of him, but there's a, there's a perspective shift that came to mind. Because these are the things that God doesn't like, and I can see, I can understand why. But it's not just a case of avoiding to do these things. What I believe we need to understand is that those of us who believe in his name, we have been given sight by God to help us live a different way. Powered by his spirit at work within us. That helps us to live accordingly. And so when I look at passages like this, it's almost not giving me a checkbox of things to avoid. It's almost saying, if these are the things that the Lord doesn't like, what are the things that he loves? And how can I act accordingly? In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25, we almost have a clear picture of of understanding of what I'm trying to say here. It says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passion and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So we have a power available and outwork within us that can help shape us and help us live according to the way God desires, the best that he has for us. So when we come across these challenging passages, these even uneasy passages, then kind of sit in here, I don't know, they sit, it sits in here when I read them, just like, ooh, this is heavy. It's worth seeing it from the alternative perspective. If God hates these things, if these things are not what he sees as right to do, what is it that he loves? And as a result of that, therefore, how is it that I should strive to be and press towards? When I look at these things in Proverbs 6, these six things he hates, seven that are detestable to him, I can see on the other perspective, five keys that can help us unlock the heart of God for us to see and how we should live out and act according to what he has for us. And these are the five keys that I want to share with you this morning. First of these is our attitude. In verse 17 of Proverbs 6, it has this statement, haughty eyes. And I looked up haughty eyes and it's eyes that are arrogant, Eyes that are selfish, proud. It's the way you see yourself. And of course, it's like, well, 
how do I flip the perspective? Instead of trying to say, I will just try not to be proud, that's a very hard thing to just say, I will try not to do. But then what is the opposite of that? It's humility. And throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, I constantly see how humility is honoured by God. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, it says, He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is a characteristic that God loves in his children, and one that is encouraged for us all to follow him. And in Proverbs 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. I like that statement there. Because we've been, we've been hearing how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But also, humility, with humility comes wisdom also. I look at, if you look at any sportsman or any athlete today, you can see in their, in their, in their, whatever sport they're doing, they want to try to be the best they can, they can be. If you can take, you can take, let's take, uh, Formula One drivers, for example. You've got these drivers that are working at high end pressure, trying to drive these cars so quickly around a track. And in order to do that, they need to, to hone their skills, they need to train hard, they need to work their body, they need to, they need to, have the right attitude and the right mindset to be the best they can be. That requires humility to not say, I am the best, so I don't need to do anything. Rather, to, to be able to become the best that I can be, I need to realize that there's still stuff that I need to work on. Now, I follow, I follow Formula One. It's a sport that I like to watch. And for example, Lewis Hamilton, if anyone knows this, he's like a five-time uh, world champion. Five times, right? You think once you won it once, you're like, I've done it, great. Well, that's it now, right? But whenever I see interviews with him, he's always saying of how he needs to improve. How he's looking at the finer details to be the best that he can be. He doesn't accept that I've just done it once. He's like, now I want to go again, but not. But I want to see improvement in, in areas that I made er errors. I think that's humility. Humble enough to, to say that, standing there and say, I am the best driver. Humbled enough to say that, I still need to get better. I still got much to learn. And we are called in scripture to emulate Christ's humility. In Philippians 2, you've got this beautiful passage. I love reading through Philippians, or even a lot of Paul's letters. Especially in Philippians 2, you've got how we are, are called to imitate Christ's humility to consider others above ourselves, to not just look to the, our own interests, but also to the interest of others. So there's also this inward focus on, on having the right attitude, but also how that then is portrayed outwards to other people as well. How you see yourself influences your relationship with others. In this world, titles, job positions, money, Knowledge, experience, gives a person a sense of identity and worth. For those who hold on to God, we know that identity is found first and foremost in Christ. Because he shapes every aspect of our being. 
and then this can be projected out. In Matthew 23, verse 12, it says, For whoever exhorts himself will be humbled, and whoever himself, who humbles himself will be exhorted. When I read that passage, um, a king in the Old Testament came to mind, and that was King Nebuchadnezzar. If you read in Daniel, we read about this king. And it's, uh, it really unveils the contrast between pride and humility. There was this king who has this great kingdom. And he was one day walking across his rooftops. And it was the statement that he said, Look at this kingdom that I have built. And in an instant, God humbled him. I don't want to be a King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to ever be in a position where I'm saying, look how good I am. I want to be always in a position when I say, look how good God is. And it's only through him that I'm able to be the best that I can be. The second key is our speech. Again, going back to Proverbs 6, you've got a couple of statements that um, refer to the way that we speak. You've got a lying tongue and being a false witness. So when I look at the opposite of that, I'm thinking, well, I want to be truthful. I want to be honest. I want to speak what is uplifting and encouraging. An interesting fact that I discovered is far more is said throughout the Bible about the abuse of the tongue than the abuse of alcohol. Now, I'm not giving anybody permission to now just to think, okay, it's okay, I can drink a little bit more. It's still important to listen to what Scripture says, but what I find fascinating is how much the tongue is spoken about and what we say and the effect that it has. And it reveals the importance of recognizing the words we, we speak in varying situations. In Proverbs 29, verse 20, it says, Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Words can so easily flow out of our mouths without regard for what is being said, or the way it's being said, or the effect it has on those who listen. People shape their view on God by what we say and how we say it. And even how we react in different situations, the words that we choose to use. When I was a child, children are a great example of this. If you actually see children have conversation, it is fascinating. Because they will speak about anything, and it's the most interesting thing to them. You know, I, I can sit there and just like, what are you talking about? You know, but for them, it's so engaging. This is, this is truth, this is life, this is all important, right? But also, children, as they grow up, they learn why it's not good to say lies or to, to say things that are not entirely true, like an elaboration. And I think, why do people lie? I actually believe that people lie to protect themselves. They protect themselves from, maybe they, they realize they've done wrong and it's a way of just protecting themselves from the consequences that may happen. Or why do people kind of, you know, over elaborate the truth? You know, it's not being completely honest. 
Or maybe it's because there's a fear of what people may think of them. There's an expectation that they feel they have to be, they have to be a part of. So they're kind of like saying, oh yeah, I've, I've done that as well when they haven't. Or I've been a part of this as well when they haven't. And when I was a kid, I was too young to remember this. This all comes from my parents. Fortunately, they're not here, so. <laughs> um, but what I could say is that I saw the wall as my canvas. I was a very creative child. So I thought, apparently, again, their words over mine. I thought that the wall was a great place for me to experiment with my creativity. And my dad said how he would, he saw me drawing on the wall, mind of my own business. And what he did was he came up behind me and he just stood there. And I was still there, drawing on the wall. Didn't know he was there. He said about a few minutes would go past and then he would say, what? are you doing? Now you can imagine there are di different ways I can respond in that situation, right? I could say, sorry, recognize I've been caught out and actually humbly apologize. I could, I could say what I'm doing. What are you doing? I'm drawing, I'm drawing on the wall and then learn a valuable lesson on why it's not a good thing to do. You know, destroying property <laughs> with creativity. What did I say? It wasn't me. <laughs> My dad had stood behind me and watched me for like five minutes drawing on the wall and I still have the audacity to say, oh, it wasn't me. It made me think that you know, our God is ever-present in every situation that we go through. And He knows every word that we speak, how we say it, and the effect that it has. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, it says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful to building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Again, we are, we are in a world where negativity surrounds us. Tom Wright states that your tongue gives you the opportunity to bring God's grace to people by what you say and how you say it. That's what I want to do. I want to be someone that breathes in life, truth, love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, in all honesty, I want to be transparent before people. If I've not said, if I've not done something or not achieved something, I want to be honest and admit that. Because truth brings life. Honesty brings life. The third key is th our thoughts. This is in relation to uh, verse 18 in Proverbs 6, a heart that devises wickedness. Ruth um, shared on this last week about how we've got to be careful guarding our hearts and what we allow in. And the same thing of what we think about. We have to be careful what we allow into our minds and what we think of others and even ourselves. And in Romans 12, we read this passage, I've heard it so many times, that, you know, do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then back to Philippians 4, verse 8, 
Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. There's this contrast here. We can allow the negative things to, com- to completely contaminate our thoughts and our minds. Or we can choose to actually see what is the good in this. What is the positive in this. What is lovely, what is admirable, what is excellent and praiseworthy. If you take the news, for example. I struggle to see how many times the news says anything good. How much things are reported that are not great. This is awful. This, per- this person's done this. This person's done that. This government's not doing, doing this. This is wrong. The country's in chaos. Pushes down. All we're, all we're getting fed is this negative media. And if you also look at uh, posters and what is advertised as well, it's like having the perfect body. What you eat, this is the lifestyle you must aspire to. And if you don't aspire to that, you failed. But those of us who follow Christ, we know better. We know that fullness of life is found in Him. Just another example to give to you. He's not, he's not here today as well. I thought he would be here. But those of you who know Kevin Motley, he, uh, he sits up in the balcony, he has dreadlocks. He runs a fitness boot camp as well in the week as well. And he runs it, runs it. He was running it here. Now the weather's good. He runs it outside and I'm a part of what he does, does as well. And this is an example of how our thoughts can so easily lead us astray in our perspective. And it's me. It was a, for me to recognize this and a humble recognition for myself. Because what happens is, is that sometimes the chairs are left out from a Sunday and Kevin on a Monday, he does like a boxing boot camp thing, like does some, boxing workout classes, right? And he comes into this room, he sees all the chairs, he's like, I need to make the space available for my class. So he stacks the chairs and pushes them to the side. Runs his class, and gets on with his session. No problem whatsoever, right? I come in on Tuesday and have to set up for kids, and then I realize the chairs haven't been stacked correctly. They're a little bit wonky, or a bit crooked. They're a bit hard to, to get off the stack. And I who the heck has done it like this? It's just stacking chairs. And it's so easy to allow what you see, allow then what your thoughts to run away. Because it's almost like, oh, is it that hard to stack chairs? <laughs> and these can build up and build up and build up that I don't see the bigger reality, the bigger picture. I know Kevin. He, uh, he works incredibly hard and he... And he works to create these camps so people can come to work out to make their bodies healthier. It's a great thing that he does. And I don't know how busy his day may have been. He may have come in and had like a minute to set up before that class started. So he's doing on his own the best he can to clear everything. Yet in myself, I come in another day and only see it from my perspective. Chairs are stacked. It's not a problem. We have to be careful what we allow into our mind and how we view things and how we view other people. We heard from Tyler a few weeks ago, we must trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding. The fourth key is actions. I don't have a timer on the screen, so I'm, I'm, 
I know I'm probably going to be going over, but it's okay. Fourth key is actions. Actions speak louder than words. Have we heard that statement before? Actions speak louder than words. And our actions reveal our true character. I've often heard people say, the proof is in the pudding. I'll see it when I believe it. Practice what you preach. Maybe that's for me today. But Our actions speak a multitude of words. And in Proverbs 21, verses 2 to 3, it says, All a man's way, ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do what is right and just is more acceptable, acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Our natural tendency is often to justify our actions. I did this because, I did this because, I walked this way because of this, I wanted to do that. Again, I was reminded of uh, King Saul who did not obey the Lord when he offered a sacrifice, but didn't wait for Samuel. Proverbs 16 verse 2 says, All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Are we keeping in step with God? Or are we trying to move by what we think is right? In Ephesians 5, 1-2, it challenges us to be imitators of Christ. Christ has come and he set the example. It's a very high bar. And I know we will fall short sometimes. But he set this example of how we must lead our lives. The right ways to act. In John 12, verses 13 to 17, you have, again, this beautiful picture of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But then he, he challenges his disciples to do what he had done for them. Again, humility is shown. But also an act. What, what would that look like today? What would that picture of washing somebody's feet look like today? And then the final key is our influence. Proverbs 27 verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The interaction of two people influences them both. And this is, I think, as really key for us as a church and as a body is that we can be a great influences for each other to sharpen one another but we must too be willing, willing to be shaped we can fall into this narrow vision sometimes of believing that we know what is right and what is best and what is the right way to go and sometimes it's not now I've done this, we must do that. Listen to what I say. And it's not, it's not a bad thing because there's experience as well, but there's also understanding that God moves in ways that is far beyond our understanding sometimes. And when one way seems right, he may be calling to go a different way. And even if that doesn't make sense, it's being willing to walk in it. In Matthew verse 5, verses 13 to 16, you have this, uh, image of being salt and light. It says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
And I think when I look at it again, this passage in Proverbs 6, and I compare it with that passage, I'm like, is this not the goal, the big difference? Our flesh and our sinful nature desires selfish ambitions. It's what the voices in this world continually shout. This world fights for peace, but ends up falling into more calamity. Yet God says, why don't you be a light? Because he's, he's, his spirit is a power that works within us. And we can be great influences, great voices that can give a different perspective to people, doing actions that may challenge and shape them. Matthew 5, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. God desires that we strive to make peace between people and him. Our influence is to be a visible representation of Christ by incorporating all that, all the keys stated before. Because if you look at the keys stated before, it all will result in our influence. Having the right attitude, saying the right words, being careful what we think, and be careful being aware of how we're acting, or all shape the kind of influences we will be. I want to have a godly influence on people around me, in my sphere. I want to, I want to speak life. I want to speak truth. I want to act in a way that may be contrary to how people feel I should act. I want to point people to God, because God so loved me, he saved me, that I want people to experience that too. I want to influence them for the better. Our influence is to be a visible representation of Christ. To feed, love, pray for our enemies. To look beyond ourselves. To not bring our brother or sister down by our words and actions, but to always seek to lift them up, encourage them and push them towards Christ. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church. One church, passionately loving God and people in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.